0: You're listening to the Doxology and Theology podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Okay, so I have an hour to talk to you about retuning hymns, Um, and I'm glad to do that. My name's Kevin Twitt. I'm a campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, which is uh, the college ministry of the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA. In Nashville, Tennessee, and have been there at a school called Belmont University for a long time, since 1995 when I graduated seminary. And uh, this Indelible Grace movement, of this retuning hymns thing, didn't start with Indelible Grace. I mean, you could trace the idea of setting new tunes to old hymn texts. goes way, way back. Most hymnals you look at, the text and the tune dates are different. Sacred harp singing, a lot of sacred harp uh, singing is sort of a group of friends, kind of one older guy and then some, a couple of younger folks that rewrote a lot of uh, hymn texts for Wesley and Watts and put it in a book called The Sacred Heart, and people still sing those. So there's lots of examples of singing old texts to newer tunes and the other way around, too, right? There are hymn writers all over the place today, especially in the mainline churches. You know, when they talk about the modern hymn movement, they mean modern hymn writers who often are putting new hymn texts to old tunes sometimes to new tunes as well. So there's lots of stuff going on with hymns, but I'm specifically talking about retuning hymns, and particularly um, old hymn texts that are in the public domain. I'll talk about that uh, in, in a bit as well. But I started out uh, as a musician. I went to Berkeley College of Music, uh, studied music production engineering, ended up down in Nashville, worked in a recording studio for a few years, joined a rock and roll band, uh, and then found myself working with college students. And the first time I ever visited an RUF meeting was when uh, I was teaching a college Sunday school class at Christ Community Church there, and Vanderbilt began an RUF chapter. And I remember the first time I went to one of those meetings, I was struck by the, the way they were singing hymns. Now, some of them, you know, like we used to sing Psalm 19, the metrical version of Psalm 19 to John Denver's Annie song. You know that, you fill up my senses. You know that song? Yes, yeah, so it, it was a little cheese, but at least the idea was happening a little bit. But that that first year that I started going to those RUF meetings, and I, man, I was just the college uh, Sunday school teacher, and so my students were going to this RUF meeting, so I started going, and I was just struck by how these students were, were wanting to sing songs that were very different. And you had pastors, not just sort of, uh, I mean, I'd been involved in lots of different parachurch college ministries in my years in college, um, and this was different. These were like seminary-trained pastors who were just having a little more control over the kinds of things that were being sung. And so they were beginning to sing some retuned hymns in these RUF circles. Um, But when I went off to seminary and came back, it it really was sort of starting to, to start to pay attention and meet with students who would often describe their struggles spiritually. Many of them had grown up in church. And they would talk about doubts and struggles they were having, and then they would um, conclude regularly that maybe they weren't Christians at all. Now, I actually think the doctrine of assurance is a pretty, it's a pretty important and also pretty important to pastorally nuance this doctrine when you're talking to people. Okay, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but I did find that regularly just the automatic conclusion that my students were making that if they had doubts and struggles and didn't feel fired up for Jesus all the time, that maybe they weren't Christians at all, that seemed to be coming from somewhere other than the Bible. And as I began to talk to them, and I would ask them, for instance, "Have you read the Psalms, because that seems to have a, a bigger, more robust idea of spirituality than just being on the mountaintop all the time. And I would find, of course, they hadn't read the psalms or sang the psalms very much. Or if they did, they sang like two lines of the psalm that was said, you know, here's Psalm 130, and it's like two lines. It's not really Psalm 130 from the depths of woe. They're not singing it like that. Um, but I would talk to them, and I, I began to, to realize that their idea of spirituality was so much coming from the songs they were singing which were undermining, honestly, a lot of what I was trying to teach them. We sang last night, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Do you know what a sweet frame is? Sweet frame is an older way of saying an emotional state. We still kind of have that sense when we talk about being in a certain frame of mind, but it's more than just thinking. It's, It's sort of like kind of your spiritual barometer. And in that text, we sing, I don't trust sweet frames. Well, my students, it wasn't that they were you know, they were trusting in Sweet Frames, and when they didn't have Sweet Frames, they weren't sure they were Christians at all. And I began to search around for some better songs to sing, some songs that would actually support uh, what we were talking about. So I want you to understand, the first thing I really want to talk about is why would you want to retune a hymn? I mean, there's a lot of songs that you could sing, there are a lot of songs that you could write, Uh, but why would you want to retune a hymn? And I want you to understand, for me, It began with a pastoral motivation. Uh, I think there's actually a long history of pastors caring about the songs people sing, but in our day, really in the last 20 years, there was kind of a disconnect that I think happened a lot in evangelicalism, where basically as worship became more technically sophisticated, um, pastors sort of checked out and you know, you've got the worship leader and then you've got the pastor and hopefully they work together. But in a lot of ways, you know, the worship and sorry, meaning the songs and the music is kind of disconnected and, and people you know, aren't necessarily attending to what is being said by these songs that we're singing. And I started to get those students in college who'd grown up in those kind of youth groups singing those kind of songs nonstop and I began to see a lot of spiritual problems. Now in RUF, all I have to work with in our public meeting is a sermon, prayers, announcement, and songs. We don't have the sacraments, so I felt like we need to use the songs and get as much out of them as we could, and I began to search around for some other songs. But again, the first thing, I was just sick of songs that were undermining undermining what I was trying to teach people about the gospel, and particularly the idea that um, that lament and sorrow and struggle and doubts have a place in the normal Christian life. So that's the first point. Why would you want to do it? Because we need more of these songs that are true about the normal Christian life. I would contend that every time you sing a group of songs or have public worship, you are modeling for people what the normal Christian life feels like. You may not intend that, but it's happening nonetheless. And therefore, you need to attend to what kind of songs, which is to say, worship is formative. It it is. It's, It's shaping you. It's shaping your expectations of what is normal. And if you are far away from what you perceive as normal, then you feel worse. I read statistically uh, a recent uh, study that showed that some of the highest suicide rates are in the Scandinavian countries. And not just because it's cold there, um, but because the sense of what people should feel and sort of the in the culture, everybody feels like you, know, you should be up here and we're such a developed country, we have so many privileges, that the gap between what people may be actually feeling and their perception of what's normal drives one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Vastly higher than most countries that we would say are much less developed, where people expect struggle. And we need to attend to that because that's going on in our Christian worship services as well. So um, I also felt that there just weren't a lot of songs that were talking about the gospel in depth. Now what for me at that point was largely anecdotal, just sort of a gut feeling. You know, people like Lester Ruth, who's a professor at Duke now, and he's confirmed this with more solid study comparing the top 250 worship songs, as reported by CCLI, with the canon of the 250 most popular hymns of the last 200 years. There's lists and there's comparisons. I actually spent an entire week one time up at Calvin College going through these various groups of songs and comparing them, particularly with regard to moral therapeutic deism. In other words, are the songs that we're singing contributing to that? And, you know, scholars are always hesitant to say anything contributes to anything. But we certainly didn't find that a lot of the songs were helping us resist the spirit of the age. I'll at least say that. And one of the fascinating things that Lester told me is that the word sin in these modern, you know, canon of modern worship songs was used never as a verb. Sin was never used as a verb in the top, you know, 250 Worship song. That's pretty astonishing. There was a few references to my sin as a noun, but never as a verb. Right? That says something. Right? That's forming people in a certain way. Now, to be fair, there's other things that happen in a worship service, it's predominantly modern songs. Um, other words are spoken, readings, scripture, sermons, right? So I don't want to be unfair and say that therefore sin is never talked about. But that's still an important thing to notice. So when the cross is mentioned in these modern songs lesser ruth is discovered um and and you could look for yourself and, and see this it's never unpacked it's never really developed we're going to sing a song later tonight at the hymn sing let us love and sing and wonder um, you know some there's some of these classic hymns that really dig into what actually is going on at the heart of the gospel um, one of my favorite couplets is from augustus Toplady, who wrote rock of ages And he has these lines, "O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. Yeah, I mean, in two lines, just to capture that paradox that's at the heart of the gospel. You know, Hebrews says it's fitting. It was fitting that Jesus should be made perfect through suffering. And I go, in what strange universe does that make sense? And is that fitting? And is that fair? At the heart of the gospel is this paradoxical kind of reality that the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. And therefore, as Charles Wesley says, really, the best response is, and can it be? Right? You you just sort of stand amazed, and you ask questions like, can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? You never exhaust that. See, that has a way of taking you deeper into the cross and the heart of the gospel that was missing from a lot of the songs that we were singing. And therefore, I was trying to talk about the gospel being the center of everything, but it wasn't the center of our songs. So we had to start to look for some other songs. I also felt like we didn't have songs that expressed the full emotional range. And we're going to talk a little bit about Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul um, when I kind of go through my process and and give you some tips on that. Um, But that was a hymn. I found this old hymnal by John Rippon. And John Rippon was a a Baptist pastor. Later, um, Charles Spurgeon took the same church that Rippon had been at. Uh, Ripon had a very important early Baptist hymn collection. I had a copy from 1807 that I'd found in a used bookstore. Um, It always struck me because the leather on the spine had fallen apart and somebody had put another piece of leather at least 100 years ago, like glued it onto the outside of this book. So I remember seeing this in a used bookstore saying, man, who loved this book so much and used it so much that they would sort of re-back the spine? Okay. And I started looking in this hymnal. Now, the hymnals from before the Civil War don't have music in them. They have just texts. And in Rippen's collection, it's just the text and then the, word, the name Steele. I didn't know who Steele was. I just remember being just arrested by that line, dear refuge of my weary soul. And thinking, my gosh, like that's not the kind of songs that are coming out of Nashville. I lived in Nashville. I know, that's not the kind of songs we're singing. That's not the kind of songs that are getting played on Christian radio. But that's where my students are, exactly. They were all loving Alanis Morissette's latest record and wondering why Christians couldn't sing about those kinds of emotions. Why were those off-limit for Christians? And I was like, well, they're not in the Psalms, but we weren't singing the Psalms. We were at a church that was already singing really only modern music for the most part. And I was like, we've got to sing songs that, that talk about the full breadth of emotions that uh, the Christian life is part of. I also was feeling like we need songs from people who don't just talk like us and think like us. And for me, like when I was in college, I remember reading an essay by C.S. Lewis called On the Reading of Old Books, where he suggested reading two old books for every new book that you read. And I had started doing that in college. I would go to these used bookstores in Boston, and I found that these old books just helped me so much more than the new books. They really did. They just took me into deeper um, reflection on on the gospel. And uh, so I kind of was already oriented that way. And then I I began to say, you know, a song like Jesus, I, my cross have taken. We'll sing that one later tonight, too. Like, that's not a song that I expect would have been written in the 20th century. Like, our framework for suffering tends to be, how can I get out of this and move past this as quickly as possible? But Christians in other eras, and even Christians even today in other parts of the world, don't automatically assume that suffering is just something to get through. They tend to think, what is God doing in the midst of this? Now, these other Christians may be wrong. Maybe we're right. And maybe we should just sort of get past suffering as quickly as, we, as possible. But my contention is, unless you have some other voice speaking to you, either from the past or from another culture, you never question your own assumptions. It's like Mike Cosper said this morning about culture, right? It's the water that you're in and you don't realize it. It's not just the culture out there. It's the culture in the church, too. The culture in the church does not assume that God speaks to us and works most powerfully in us through suffering, even though, you know, for most of the history of the church, I'd contend Christians thought that. It hasn't really been the cultural air that we breathe. So I found it very helpful to find older Christians that thought differently. Again, they could be wrong, but I'll never question my assumptions unless I'm singing other songs or reading other things, right? And then I felt like we needed songs that were expanding our metaphors and scriptural knowledge. I don't want to be unkind, but somebody said to me once, you know, if you could invent like a a worship song generator website, you know, you really, in some ways, particularly in the 80s and 90s, there were just such a small handful of cliches uh, in a lot of the songs that were just stuck together almost randomly. There wasn't development of thought. It was just... You know, here's a here's, you know, a list of like twenty words that are here and about twenty words here and certain rhymes that are just cliche. Now I think things have gotten a lot better. I mean it's one of the cool things about being at this conference is besides retune hymns, there's all kinds of great songs being written. Right? It's so exciting. I think about the first time I came to Southern here and got to talk about hymns, a guy named Chip Stam was here. It was probably around two thousand and two. And who would have ever thought that we could fill up that sanctuary down there with people that cared about doxology and theology and these things connected. It's unbelievable to me. Um, And so it's so exciting, right? But in a lot of ways, where we were in the 90s, man, we just needed to go outside of modern songs to start to broaden our sense of of metaphors. There's a book I read one time. uh, It's called The, The Imaginative World of the Reformation or something close to that by a guy named Peter Matheson. And he says that when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. And in some ways, well, he, he actually is an expert at the Reformation era pop culture. And he talks about how the primary image that people had before the Reformation of who Christ is, is Christ is judge, which is true. But if that's the only thing you think of, whether it's through the passion plays or the woodcuts or the songs, the, all these sorts of things, we're all basically saying this is who Christ is. He's the judge. But he says as the Reformation happens, as people begin to hear the Bible in their own language, preached, all of a sudden there's an explosion of metaphors in the popular culture. You see it in the woodcuts, you see it in the songs, you see it in the plays, in all these popular cultural mediums. And, and what was happening there? Like, I really feel like you need all those metaphors because they balance each other out. right? If you just have one and you just camp on it, it might be true, but it's... Well, there's an old adage, Calvin probably never did say it, but it's attributed to him that a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is a complete untruth. It's true, whether he said it or not. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is a complete untruth. And again, we need to be careful about that. So I've got more thoughts on that. But that's what was driving this. And as I began to get into these old songs, some of it was more intuitive. And if you're songwriters, you know so much of the way you write songs or even the choices you make are intuitive. And then later, you can go back and think about it. Be like, oh, that kind of makes sense. I found when we made that first in Double Grace CD, and we'd been singing these songs for about five or six years when we finally decided to make a CD, like we thought literally we'll be lucky if we can repay the church the money they gave us to print up 1,000 copies of the CD. right? And then people just resonated with it in a way that really astonished us. And I began to feel like there's really like, like a whole kind of longing that's all over the place for songs that express these kinds of things. So I'm not saying I sort of analyzed all this. Some of this, the longing for songs about suffering and songs that went deeper into the gospel, that definitely was driving me. Some of this other stuff, as I began to think, why have these hymns resonated with people? I began to reflect on some of these things that were missing from some of the songs we're doing. Now, my hope was always that we wouldn't just stop with retuned hymns, but even that the old hymn writers would disciple us into writing new songs. And I feel like that's going on now, and it's really exciting to see. Um, it's a little daunting if you've studied Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley than to put you know, pen to paper. I remember uh, in 2002, we had a guy, Bruce Hindmarsh, who's one of the world's authorities on John Newton. And he came to Belmont and gave this lecture. And, and uh, it was about basically kind of a poetic analysis of when I surveyed the Wondrous Cross. And I remember, I distinctly remember like Matthew Perryman Jones and Sandra McCracken and Katie Bowser just sort of walking out. Like, like why bother even trying to write words? But what I would remind you is that most hymn writers are known for one hymn. And most hymn tune writers are known for one tune. Right? You, you pro- maybe if you're really a great lover of hymns, you can come up with 10 hymn writers that you know more than one of their hymns. But you probably can't come up with 20. Right? So be humble, but go for it. Right? And if you, you know, are able to write something that people in your local setting find helpful and useful, praise God. And if it resonates with people beyond that, awesome. If it resonates even for the next generation, well, that's a remarkable thing. Um, But God does allow that to happen sometimes. But don't sort of compare yourself to Watson Wesley. You know, Um, that's that's a lot of years and a lot of hymn writers, and only a few, you know, like that. Okay. So thoughts on that? Questions about that? There'll probably be more questions as we maybe get into some of the nitty gritty about how I think about this. Well, how do you approach retuning? Now, I told you um, I want to talk about Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, and I don't know if this cable will let me walk this far. Let's see. Um, so I remember when I first found this text, and this really is what I, what I do. I mean, I think the first step in trying to retune a hymn is you've got to find a text that's worth retuning. right? And honestly, the more you read hymn texts, the better you'll be. Because hymns, just like modern songs, have cliches. And you'll start to notice them more when you've read lots of hymns. Even certain hymn writers will use certain phrases over and over again. You're like, oh, that's Ann Steele. She loves that little phrase. And you know, once you start reading them, I just think read lots and lots of hymns. But what I do is I'll take like these old hymn books, and I'll talk about where to find old hymn books. That's my third point here. Um, I'll just kind of read through them. Often I'll read through them with my little iPhone voice recorder. And I, if I find one that has a, a striking first line, then I'll keep reading it. Uh, now, sometimes I have like a particular topic that I'm looking for. Like I remember one time we were doing a series on healing and community. And I thought, man, we need some, some songs for that. And I remember looking at our kind of songbooks that we had in our church, and we didn't have anything. And then uh, except the hymnals we had had Blessed Be the Tie that Binds," which is a cool hymn and a great story behind it. Um, But not much else. And I remember digging into this old uh, Southern Presbyterian hymnal I had from right before the Civil War. And it had some amazing hymns about community. And I thought, gosh, we need to sing those. So there have been times when I very specifically was like, we need this topic and we need a song to sing. And here's a text and I don't know a tune to sing with it um, because this hymnal doesn't have any tunes. So, you know, for a long time we sang a lot of hymns to Come Thou Fount, the tune Come Thou Fount, and Amazing Grace. Rock of Ages because with those three tunes you can sing kind of half the hym- hymnal if it's an english hymn book you really can right because there's only a few meters but after a while it like, gets kind of kind of boring and so sometimes i'd be like okay here today we're gonna i'd literally do this in sunday school i'd be like here's a text that i would love for us to sing we can sing it to amazing grace but take a copy of it and maybe somebody can write a tune and come back next week All right and so i think in some ways like developing a culture and a safe place for people to try This sort of thing is really important and really valuable. And honestly, the fact that I was doing college ministry was a real gift in that regard. Because I didn't have to deal with people in the church who were going to be upset that I was sort of messing with their traditions. Right. Um, It it was college students like, you know, if they don't like it, you know, like they're all going to graduate in three or four years. (laughs) Like Seriously, I do think that college ministry is one of the great sort of experimental, you know, labs for the church of the future. You know, it's actually a helpful helpful thing. Um, well, I, you know, I would, I would start to get into these, these texts. I would read a text like, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, and keep reading. And it continued to impress me as a song that was needed to be sung. And so then sometimes, even right then, I will try to speak it out loud. Here's one of the things that, that I would tell you after retuning hymns and listening to lots of retuned hymns that people send me. I think the best ones tend to be ones that were written without an instrument in your hand. And the reason is because most people will only ever engage that hymn tune by singing it. And a lot of hymns are very wordy. And so if you start with like chords or a strum pattern on the guitar, and then you try and squeeze in the words, it tends to be kind of real kind of blah melodies that stay on the same note and don't go... V- very interesting places. Like my friend Chris Miner, who's written some of my favorite hymn tunes. He writes them so slow, you know. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but by doing that, he's able to write really fascinating, interesting melodies. Like "Oh, love that will not let me go." That's how he sings it. Like he literally sang it. Like, and we were like, "Okay, we could speed it up a little bit." Um, but it still has that movement. But if you had started out with those chords, you never would have had that kind of movement. You would have just kind of stayed. And I found that a lot in both my own tunes that I've written and the ones other people have written. I feel like you just need to start talking out the words out loud, like, dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise. Hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the words wrong, and then that's going to be on recording and it's going to be bad. So I'm going to have it in front of me. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. And I would just say that out loud and try to f- settle into, like you can't say that fast. That's not a dear refuge of my weary soul on thee, when you know, just that's not how you say it. I think the best tunes Tend to be conversational. In other words, they tend to mimic the natural stresses if you would say the, the the poetry out loud. And so I would just kind of say that over and over again, often with my little voice recorder running, and then I would try to put a little, kind of tune to that. Just I don't know how to describe that that stage, but it's sort of adding sort of melody to, the words that you're saying. And then um, what's interesting about dear refuge of my weary soul. Is there's a two-four bar at the end of every other line, okay? Because the refuge of my weary soul on thee when sorrows rise. Like even though it's two lines, it really is one thought. So you want to keep going, but after two lines of that, you've got to take a pause and you got to take a breath. And so you know when I go back and look at the tune that I came up with and analyze it, I'm like, that's interesting. There's a two-four bar there. It's a little awkward actually, even to sing as a group. It just makes you stop. And like, look around, and okay, and then we're going to pick it up again. Dear refuge of my weary soul, you're out of breath, and you've got to stop, and you've got to pause. And for me, this lyric does that. Like, that's the mood of this lyric. Um, actually, there's a verse that I didn't know about when I wrote this tune that's actually the second verse. And it basically says, you know, while I still have a little bit of hope, I'm going to sort of put my thoughts together and pour them out before you, God. So like verse two of this hymn is, you know, you're my dear refuge and my weary soul on whom my fainting hope relies. You know, a good orthodox confession, crying out to God. This is typical in Anne Steele's hymns. But man, I'm really struggling. And then verse two, she says, I'm struggling so much, but I have a moment of light. And while I have this moment of light, I'm going to just pour it out there. Right. And so I I feel like in a sense, like this, the song should feel heavy. It should feel like, She's tired. She she talks in there about um, I breathe my sorrows in the end of verse three. Breathe my sorrows is not like sing from the you know from the rooftops. It's I can barely find enough energy to voice what I'm feeling. All right, it's like Romans eight, like these groans too deep for words. Right. So you know now this isn't the most group friendly song, right? But I I always. I always start with, does it have a great first line? Is it doctrinally true? Is it experimentally true? I think on the sheet there it says experientially, but I like that older word that older you know, Calvinists used to use called experimental religion. That means religion that you feel, feeling the doctrine. My friend Scotty Smith talks about you know, not, it's important not just to understand the lyrics of the gospel, but to hear the music. For me, it was head and the heart being connected. Like, I remember in college reading Knowing God by Jab Packer and being amazed at this rich theology. And, um, you know, years later, I needed to be able to sing that theology. And then I went back and, you know, read Jab Packer's Knowing God again and found it was full of hymns that I had skipped when I read it the first time. Even hymns that had become so precious to me, like I asked the Lord that I might grow. J.I. I. Packer was already there. He already knew that one before we ever found it in another place and found it so important to sing. He was already on it, right? And um, so, doctrinally and experimentally or experientially true, right? Because I think, you know, as Augustine is credited with this this saying, "He who prays, or sorry, he who sings, prays twice." And the idea is that music intensifies whatever it is you're singing, whether it's praise or lament. And so I think one of the important things about these hymns is not just are they doctrinally true, but do they ring true of Christian experience? Because actually, this is one of the richest repositories of Christian experience, particularly as it's expressed by real people and women, not just leaders of the church and not just the people that you know, write theological confessions. Um, it's actually a remarkable thing. So many voices that often get marginalized and not heard when you study church history, you get to hear when you study the history of hymnody. And I think that's actually important. So, and then, you know, I asked, does, it, does this text say things in a fresh, non cliche, evocative way? Is there something striking about the imagery? And there's all kinds of things we could say about that, but, you know, great hymns sort of just use this economy of words. Like they say things in in sort of just a a little phrase that is just so evocative. Um, Well, like that, you know, the judge of all has suffered death to set his um, prisoner free. One of Charles Wesley's best ones, being source begins to be. in talking about the incarnation. I mean, man, how do you top that? Being source begins to be. And, and so, you know, does it have those kinds of things? James Montgomery, who is also a great hymn writer, he wrote Angels from the Realms of Glory. He wrote a hymn that I love called Go to Dark Gethsemane. Um, he said that, that great hymn writing is difficult, especially for fine poets, because fine poets tend to write too opaque. The poetry is, is you, you kind of have to sit in it for a while to kind of figure it out. Um, but he said a good hymn, you can understand it the first time you sing it. You should be able to say amen. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians, right? People should be able to say amen. What's going on in the worship service? It should be understandable to them. And yet Montgomery says a great hymn repays singing over and over again with new depths of meaning. And one of the ways that they do that is with paradox. Because paradox, you kind of get what being source begins to be. But the more you think about it, the more you realize there are depths to that because of these two things that don't seem to fit together, that get put together and sort of the sparks that kind of come off of that you know, they, they, they spread out into all kinds of, of areas, right? Now, again, sometimes, you know, systematic theologians get a little nervous about that, but, you know, God chooses to use poetry and imagery and metaphor to reveal himself. Um, C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, talks about, you know, which is more true, to say God is omnipotent or to say God is a rock? And, and he argues that both of those are actually Kind of metaphors, in a sense, you know, one sounds more scientific to say omnipotent, you know, but it's not really fully capturing even what we mean when we say that. And he says, which does God use to describe Himself? We should be okay with some of these rich metaphors. Again, my my thing is, if you have all of the biblical metaphors working together, it keeps you from over-interpreting things, pressing too far. Scripture interprets scripture. And metaphors help with other metaphors, right? Um, but I think that you, you want to try to find fresh, non-cliche, evocative ways. It's one of the reasons I'd say sometimes a strange word can be interesting. I, I think you should you know, probably explain it to people sometimes. I thought what um, Bleeker was talking about, about even you know, maybe putting adding to the slide, like a quick little thing that maybe explains what it is. Uh, I thought that was really kind of a cool, interesting idea. Um, you want to be able to explain things, but you don't want to be real pedantic and like completely kill the flow. So that can be a challenge. But if you have kind of a smaller canon of songs that you sing regularly, my deal is I try to explain one thing about one song every time we worship. And hopefully, after a while, people have kind of figured out most of the things that would enrich their singing of those hymns. Now, if you come to the hymn sing tonight, I'm going to do more than that, because I'll probably say a little something about almost every single song we sing but that's because it's a hymn sing you know and so that's that's allowed Um, but you know these are the things I say when it's thinking about a text worth retaining does it does it say things in a new fresh way do we need more songs about the cross yeah sure absolutely but uh, you know let's find some that say things in new ways you know not just an opportunity to to write a song Um, does it contribute to an area where there are gaps in our songs is another question um again, now here's the thing, though, hymns don't fill in all the gaps. There are gaps in hymnody. Um, now, I, I don't know if I should tell this story or not. What, what, here, here's what I was most impressed by Bob Coughlin. I was at a, a seminar with him. It was up at a worship conference that won't be named. And there was a panel uh, of hymn writers, modern hymn writers, a couple different folks and then Bob. And somebody asked a question from the audience what uh, Are there areas in the church's hymnody, sort of canon of hymns, that, where there are gaps and areas where we need new hymns? And Bob went first, and of course he said, well, you're going to th- think I sound like a broken record, but I think we need more songs about the cross and connecting it to everything. It's like, yeah, of course. Um, and then one of the other hymn writers said, I think the issue for the church in the next 20 years is the ethical treatment of non-human animals, and we need hymns for that. And Bob kept a straight face. I, I mean, I guess, but I just don't think that's the biggest gap in the church's hymnody. I think there are, but I do think social justice is a big gap in the church's hymnody. And it's kind of astonishing because so many of the hymn writers were very involved personally in those kinds of tangible works of mercy. I mean, the Wesleys, like, literally would have themselves chained to, you know, people that were going to be executed the next morning, right? Like when Wesley writes, "My chains fell off." I know he's referencing, you know, the Philippian jailer—that whole scene. But it's also an image he understands full well. He himself had been fettered, you know, um, next to people that were going to be, you know, put to death. Right? The Wesleys worked it for to reform, you know, all those kind of laws. There was no, um, there was no age limit, minimum age limit in England at the time the Wesleys lived, for where you could execute somebody. And people were executed for stealing a loaf of bread, even kids, right? And the Wesleys worked at that, but they don't really write hymns about that. Um, the Methodists actually put together a collection of Wesley's hymns out of like his six thousand hymns, hymns for the poor, and you know, and they found like thirty, right? James Montgomery, who wrote "Angels in the Realms of Glory," now he has one great one: "All um, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, Great David's Greater Son," which is a version of Psalm Two. Okay and um but he you know was not just a hymn writer and a poet but he's also a newspaper editor got thrown in jail twice for criticizing the british government and policies that he thought were affecting the poor right so he was very involved in that but it doesn't show up in his hymns very much william cooper even in his poetry criticizes the slave trade before john newton or william wilberforce had taken up the issue but it doesn't necessarily show up in his hymns so there are definitely a, a lack of hymns talking about social justice. Well, let me add a caveat. There are a lot of modern hymn writers writing about social justice, but in my opinion, they don't connect the gospel to it the way I would want to see. So there's gaps for sure. The kingdom of God, there are gaps in traditional hymnody. There's a a great classic hymn, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. But it's really, the hymn is talking about the church. That's what that hymn means by kingdom. It means the people who are God's people. That's the kingdom. You could really say, I love thy church, O Lord, because that's really what that song is about so there's not a lot of you know classic hymns on the kingdom of God in the sense of taking the shalom that God is bringing and and sort of taking it to every area of life there's not much about that there's not much about the second coming that's not sort of take us into a cloud somewhere N.T. Wright makes that critique and it's a fair critique um, in his book Surprised by Hope that if you look at a lot of the hymns so I found it's interesting Horatius Bonar who is actually a premillennial, not a dispensationalist premillennial, but a premillennial guy? A lot of his hymns about the premillennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom, actually work really well um, for like the new heavens and the new earth coming down. It's be not what he meant, and so maybe it's not not fair. But they actually work that that, that way um, because he at least believes that there's going to be a physical transformation of this world, not just take us out of here, you know, somewhere else. Which a lot of hymns about heaven seem to do that kind of thing. So, you know, are are there areas, so sometimes you can kind of look, and here's the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, even when you take old hymnals, like if you look, you know, um, in the seminar I was at right before this, you know, Dr. Cruikshank was mentioning how there's 19 Anne Steele hymns in this Baptist hymnal from the late 1800s, but, you know, she wrote a lot more than that. And so go look at the hymns that hymnal editors didn't include, and you might find, hymns that we really need that maybe weren't as needed in her day, or maybe were needed, but the hymnal editors didn't think they were needed. I don't know. Um, and sometimes you can find other verses. So, you know, even trying to find beyond just the hymn books, uh, other places, you can find some hymns that might fill in gaps that we need, right? And then the question is, it's still under copyright. You know, you can't retune Great is Thy Faithfulness. You can't. Like, if if a song has been set to a piece of music the copyright law says you can't pull that apart without the permission now that bumps up against church history practice i know that but you live in america at least most of you and you've got to kind of deal with the copyright laws okay so you don't have any problems if you do you know pre-1900 hymns right public domain you can mess with them you can change words if you need what's interesting as well i'll tell you you can go to hymnary.org. do you know this website hymnary.org? Now, hymnary.org isn't the best for finding extra verses because it only includes verses that were published in a hymnal somewhere. But it's really great if you're like, you know, I love this hymn, but that line is kind of awkward. You can look up every appearance of that hymn in any hymnal and see every variation. And a lot of times you'll find, oh, there's somebody that changed it, and that works really well. So you're not just, it's not just up to you to come up with another word. Like, I really don't like, um, and I ask the Lord that I might grow... Um, Newton writes, cast out my feelings, is that what he says? No, blasted my feelings, but blasted the accents on the wrong syllable. He even makes a little mark like in in the original text with like an accent, blasted my feelings, laid me low, right? It was awkward to sing, so we kind of there in the recording studio try to come up with another word, and I don't think we came up with the best one. I should have looked at hymnary.org and saw, are there other ways that people have handled that, that awkward, archaic wording? And sometimes you'll find that, right? So don't necessarily reject a song or a hymn because it's got an awkward word. And something else you can do is you can take verses from one hymn, stick them with verses from another hymn. You know you can do that? You can even take a line from a hymn and make, you know, sort of make a stanza out of different lines. If they're public domain, you can do all that kind of stuff. Like, there's no rule against it. And actually, there's a history of doing that very thing. Um, so that's, thoughts on that, finding a text worth returning. Any thoughts or questions about that? No? I'm going to tell you here in a sec about um, you know where to find some good good songs. Uh, I've got a couple other thoughts. I, I told you about Dear Refuge, about writing without an instrument, right? Um, but I can tell you an, another thing that I would say that's helped me. Um, is trying to find new methods of writing again, one of the challenges of writing tunes to English hymn texts is the same few meters, which tends to make your songs sound a lot alike, okay though I think it's interesting you know to think about a lot of them end up having almost an A-A-B-A form, and, and I think I was even thinking there was one of the songs we were singing uh, some point earlier today. And I, was, I leaned over to the guy next to me and I say, Even this melody has a rhythmic motif in it, in this traditional hymn, that makes it very easy to sing. Like you just fall into the pulse, and you've just got it. And so I think actually it's interesting, Like sometimes we just analyze, in sort of Western music, we tend to analyze how our melody goes against the chordal structure. And um, there's a lady, I forget her name now, but she does, does these uh, seminars at the Hymn Society conferences where she'll talk about just look at the, the melody line itself and how does it, how does it work uh, as it evolves over time and even building in little rhythmic motifs. Um, a lot of people that send me hymn tunes, I find that they're going along, you're starting to get into the, you feel like you've got it and then they throw a curve at you. And that's hard because nobody wants to sort of jump out there when they're singing along and find that they're the only one. You know, people will sing tentatively if you don't sing, lead very clearly. They also sing tentatively if the rhythm, like they can never kind of find where it is. Like syncopation can work. I heard Paul Westermeyer, a great church music uh, scholar, say one time that syncopation works. And there are a lot of hymn tunes that have lasted for generations that have syncopation, but it has to be dance-like. In other words, it, it has to sort of fall into sort of kind of a logic to itself that you catch and you can follow along with. But if you're just going along, da, 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 you know, like, whoa, you know, um, if you've ever heard the original, you know, version of A Mighty Fortress, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, you can't, there's no way it's a, a German drinking song. Um, it's not, you know, that's been, you know, debunked, but if you heard the original tune, you could never sing that song after you'd had a few beers, for sure. Uh, it's like, <roller singing> da, 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 da. It's just really fascinating. But we hear that, and we try and find a kind of 4-4 to put it in, and it's hard. It doesn't fit that way. But if you just kind of let it work its magic, and you just hear the tune as the tune sort of going along and unfolding over time, sometimes you can sing. That's kind of what Dear Refuge does. like. If you try and notate it, it almost is like weird. Um, But if you just let it sing and let it ebb and flow, you know, I know it's kind of a different way of of trying to lead singing, but uh, sometimes that works. This all kind of fits in with this idea of analyze and perfect what you've written, which to me is one of the hardest things to do. Like after you write something, it just sort of in my head seems like this is the way it goes. So I've got like lots of tunes that are just not quite right that I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how to change them, I don't know how to fix them, but it is worth you know, trying them out with people and seeing what works, because I'll tell you, every Indelible Gray CD we've made we will get together, I'll get, bring like 20 or 30 of my college students over, we'll sing through all the songs I'm considering, and every time there's some song that I thought for sure was going to work, and it just doesn't, like it's just hard to sing. And then there's some song that I'm sure is not going to work, but you know the person who wrote it is dear to me, so we'll try it, and then it's like, oh, this was great. And always somebody will be like, you know, such and such a song, you know, it's my favorite song. I'm like, I hate that song. We never sing that song anymore. We put it on a record. My rule is I never put a song on a record that we haven't tried out in worship first, and I always violate it because I'm sure that I've developed enough of a sense now to know what will work. And I'm always wrong. <laughs> you know? Like, it's just hard to know sometimes. Yeah. So you just got to analyze, perfect, try it out with people, be humble. You know, think of the artist as servant. Let that be your model. Like, is your goal to, like, you know, write a tune that you just, like, nobody can touch this or mess with this? Or is it to enable the church to be able to sing some of these texts that they're not able to sing anymore? Sometimes you've got to do a heart check on that, you know? Um, check for range and rhythm difficulties. Deal with awkward words. Um, that's all I have to say about that. Let me just briefly talk about how to find text and then see if we got time for any more questions. eBay is awesome. Like I've been collecting, trying to find old hymnals for a long time. Now, in the early days when I started trying to retune hymns, we had the Trinity Hymnal, which is a hymnal the Presbyterians use, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the PCA kind of joint hymnal project. And it's a, it's a really good hymnal. And it, involve, it includes a lot of stuff that's not just English hymnody, a lot of hymns from other cultures, a lot of German hymns, which I think are so rich. Um, But after a while everybody in sort of our little RUF circle was using the same hymnal and like drawing from the same hymns and they were retuning hymns that people already loved and we had good tunes for. Um, This is what a lot of people don't know when in an RUF meeting we sing a lot of traditional hymns. We don't just sing all these new hymns and when we put together the RUF hymn book half of the tunes are traditional tunes. On the Indelible Grace CDs we tend to see those as a resource of new tunes. okay? But that's not my practice of just singing all new, t- new hymns, new tunes. Um, but I felt like I needed to go find, especially after I got some hate mail you know, from people like, you know, why did you retune this hymn? We love this hymn. And I'd be like, well, I didn't know anybody sang it anymore. Because I didn't grow up singing it. We didn't sing it in our church. I found it in an old hymn book that didn't even have music. I'm sorry. Uh, I just wanted us to be able to sing it. Now that I've heard the tune, I feel like that's a good tune. You know, we could sing that one. Um, But I had to go look more and more obscure places. Okay, so eBay came around that time, and it was—it's awesome because let me tell you, if you go to used bookstores, it's hard to find old hymnals. You can find like gospel songbooks from the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Those are a dime a dozen. But really, like old hymnals pre-Civil War are hard to find now. Unfortunately, it's sort of the, the days when I could get great old leather-bound hymnals for twenty, twenty-five bucks on eBay are kind of over. I'm afraid to say, unless you get really lucky. I maybe own them all. I keep telling people where to find them, so then I get outbid all the time. I used to—that used to be my standard wedding gift if I would marry some of my students. I'd love to find them an old hymnal and give it to them. I can't afford to do it anymore. Um, But just as that was drying up or becoming more difficult, um, Google Book Search arrives. And all these libraries are digitizing these public domain books. So one of the great Presbyterian hymnologists, Lewis Benson, and if you really want to get into the history of hymns, his book, The English Hymn, is the book you have to own and you have to read. And it's also the best book to help you find hymnals on eBay. Because in the index, he lists every hymnal put out by any denomination, even obscure groups like the Swedenborgians. You ever, ever been to one of their churches? I lived next door to a Swedenborgian church for a while in Boston. But, you know, really obscure, maybe, you know, heterodox groups, or even this book. And you can look up every name of a hymnal you'll see on eBay, and you can figure out, oh, that's the Methodist revision, 1867. It's the same as the one I already have, but it has 20 other new songs. Do I really need that one? I don't know but at least I know what it is now. Or this, you know, hymn book for the use of Christians, that's a Unitarian hymn book. I would never have known that, but I can look it up and in and Lewis Benson. So if you really wanna collect old hymn books, you gotta get Lewis Benson. But here's the thing, his entire hymnal collection is at Princeton Theological Seminary, and it's all been digitized, it's all online for free. You can download PDFs of everything. It's, I mean, that's just amazing. So, you know, you will have no Loss of places to look for obscure hymnals, and not just hymnals. But you know George Matheson, who wrote "A oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go," he wrote 212 hymns, and you can find that complete collection not at Hymnary, not at the Cyber Hymnal, but you can find it through Google Book Search, right? And you can get the entire thing. You can look through all of them. I had somebody find me um, a copy of the lady that wrote "Before the Throne of God Above," Charity Lee Bancroft found me a copy of her hymnal, Behind the, you know, Behind the Veil, I think it's called. It's like two copies in the world's museums. And this lady getting her PhD in church music, got him to send her one, and she made copies of it. Like It's unbelievable, all the stuff you can find through the world's libraries and through um, Google Book Search. And now, print on demand. So that if you don't like reading a, you know, a PDF on your Kindle, you can actually get a print on demand version of most of these books. Right. So Anne Steele's hymns have been out of print for a long, long, long time. But now you can go to Amazon right now, look up Anne Steele and get a paperback, you know, of her hymns for like 20, 25 bucks. So there's lots of cool places to look. And honestly, I honestly I would often give these old hymnals or these especially these reprinted hymnals like Spurgeon's book or Gadsby's. I would give it to my students. Um, kind of. It was sort of my pastoral way of getting them to live in these texts, whether they wrote a tune or not. I knew that if they were going to try to retune a hymn, they were going to have to really inhabit that text, which was going to be spiritually good for them. So that's kind of my ultimate thing is, even if you write tunes that nobody sings, it's still spiritually helpful to try to take it on, try it on, and enter into it in the way that you have to when you write a song. So I listed all kinds of things here, places, books that you may not know. And it's just the tip of the iceberg, especially the hymnals and source of hymn texts. Um, You know, Henry Light, who wrote Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken, has, you know, you can find his poetical works online. He wrote an entire volume of psalms versions. Charles Wesley did versions of almost every psalm. And Duke University has every bit of Wesley's hymnology stuff online for you to download. So there's just so much great stuff. So thoughts, questions? Questions? Yes, hi. Yeah, I it find it easier to write slow hymns. I want to do more, up, more up up-tempo. Up-tempo, yeah. So it's not like every hymn is up-tempo. Yes. That, yeah, that's a great point. So the question is about, you know, I, it's easier to write slow hymns. I want to do more up-tempo ones, but it's hard to do. That is so right. And I found, you know, the first one I ever wrote was Arise My Soul Arise. And still, like when I get my little CCLI report, that one is used by more churches more than every other one I've done combined. And I think it's because of that very thing, that there's not a lot of up tempo songs that are substantive and say something. Yeah. So I you know, hail to the Lord's Almighty, I was like, you know, hail to the Lord's anointed. I really wanted us to be able to sing that and I told Sandra McCracken, you should write a tune to this. And she told me, well, Welcome Wagon did one. I was like, yeah, I know, but I, I want one that's really up-tempo. You know, try your hand at it anyway. And um, that's one of my favorite ones on our last CD because we just need more of those that are kind of called to worship hymns. Um, but they don't always have to be peppy. Sometimes it's nice to start with a place where people actually are, which may not be, you know, yeah i'm excited that i'm here you know maybe people aren't really excited but i do think that and keith getty told me same thing that he has the hardest time with up tempo songs it's very hard unless you go celtic three four it's hard to do up tempo and have it not sound cheesy Um, so i sympathize with you and I, i tend to when i'm like picking songs for our records i tend to skew towards if somebody's written an up tempo one that i think is useful and helpful i'll tend to say, man, we need to get that on the record for sure, because there's just a dearth of those. And, uh, you know, yeah. So again, that's part of not just a gap in the hymnody topic, but it's a gap in the kinds of songs. Um, And a lot of the people I'm trying to sort of woo into trying retuned hymns are already doing more up-tempo, kind of loud, rocking worship. And so if you just say, well, why don't you just sing Dear Refuge? I mean... It may be an easier bridge, you know. I've talked, you know, Zach Hicks has talked about that, like production-wise, even doing something that sounds more similar to what people are doing to try and draw them a little deeper into consider some of these texts. You don't have to completely change your sound and your style, but you can add some depth that maybe you would like. Yeah. Yeah. One of the struggles yeah. I've had with that is that because you are so verbose, when you're doing a yeah. tempo, you need to sort of stretch it out. Stretch the it levels out. Levels, yes. That's true. And so it, it, it is a, almost a tension. Yep. You the yep. some, yeah. Uh, you have to chop verses Yeah, yeah. Eliminate them. verses. Yeah, that's true. For yep, yeah. Even Hail the Lord's Anointed. Like we had to cut out five or six verses, and it's still like six or seven. Yeah. Um, the other thing, though, um, Horatius Bonar, most of his hymns are monosyllabic because he wrote them for children. So like, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Hardly any double syllables in his hymns. That's true of almost all of his hymns. They actually work pretty well with a little more syncopated rhythm. So when I was in a church for a long time that was in East Nashville, which is a more racially mixed area of our city, and we're trying to do music that draws more from Black gospel, like Bonar's hymns actually are pretty helpful in trying to think about music that can be a little more syncopated. Um, and you can find other hymn writers that were that were like that. Yeah. 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 beautiful ways to craft words. Yeah. And I love it. You know, and I I mean I had it my way, of course, I'd rather we all speak like that. Mhm. You think you uh So I just wondered like what's your Yeah, how I think how do you approach Yeah, that? how do I approach <laughs> archaic language which sometimes seems rich but is <laughs> a barrier? Yeah. So Matthew Smith, who leads the Indelible Grace touring Band, and I kind of have a different opinion on this, and it really comes down to a case-by-case basis. Sometimes, like, you're like, it's archaic, but it doesn't need to be, you know, or sometimes people will sell me, send me new hymn texts that they've written in these now kind of archaic language. I'm like, that's just strange. Like, I don't want you to feel like you need to be, you know, an 18th century Englishman to worship, but here's what I would say. Um, I want... I get this from Brian Wren, who his theology I diverge from quite a lot. But he talks about how in our worship we want to sing our songs and other people's songs. So we want to give um, we want to let people know that God has incarnated us in a particular place, a particular culture. So sing songs that are in our voice. But we also want to make sure that people understand, even from the form of our worship, that the church is bigger than people that sing like us and talk like us. So I I try to work with that. That's not a rule. That's a principle that I try to use. Um, so I, I like singing a song that has some archaic language now and then because it reminds people that this is an old song and that Christians believe that the church is made up of the living who've, you know, went before us. Um, that's okay. But sometimes they're needlessly archaic or they're just, it's just too difficult. So you kind of have to know who you're, singing, who you're leading, and where the bar is. Sometimes if you explain a term, it can help. I argued a lot with um, Chelsea Scott. There was a song she did that had this, um, Oh, Blessed Jesus, had a line about, you know, um, our wounds, we find covert in you. I was like, covert is like that, like the the metal round thing in my, you know, uh, cul-de-sac. You know, do you know what I mean, what a covert is? You know, covert, yeah. Yeah, and, and or covert for us is a it's like a, it's not a noun, use it right? A covert say it's covert, like you're undercover, right? But in this hymn, it was that way. And she was like, No, I want people, I love that because it's such a striking, jarring image. Um, that she kind of argued for it, and I let her put it on there. But I, I don't know, it, it you could say, I don't know what that means. What is that? And either some people will be like, They'll sing it anyway, some people will be like, That's weird, I'm not going to sing that. Or you could explain it, and you have to kind of decide what's the best case. I do find, um, you know, some of the changes are are not, not good, not helpful. Um, but you can look at again hymnary.org and see various versions and ways people have done. I, I certainly am in favor of changing hymns when you need to. Um, Augustus Toplady wrote when the Rock of Ages. He originally wrote when my eye strings break in death. You know, and it was changed to When My Eyes Shall Close in Death. I think that was a good change, you know. And um, was it Charles Wesley's Hark How All the Welkin Rings? Hark the Angel, Hark the Herald Angel Sings? Like, you know, that's a good change. Some of, the, some of our best loved hymns underwent significant changes like that that made them more useful. I'd rather that happen than that nobody sing it, you know. But I also don't want to just give in all the time because I do think there can be a reason for keeping some of that older language at times. And again, like that come thou fount, like, like who is it saying how many people's testimonies they reference that prone to wander? I've seen that same thing. Like even singing these hymns allows people to have a range of language to even describe things they didn't know how to put words to before. Um, I think, you know, I love to read, you know, the Puritans and some of these the letters of John Newton, some of these things. I just think they had a, a depth of understanding of the ways of the human heart that we have lost a lot of that. And some of these hymns preserve some of that and give us language for things we're feeling that we tend to not get from pop Christian books anymore. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Nobody else? Yeah? So we talked a lot about the text itself, but what yeah. about the way they're sung? Mm-hmm. I know that at least in, in the 90s, it has four part harmony. Oh, yeah. Is, is that a topic I Sure. You can ask me about four part harmony. I don't. I don't tend to do that. I mean, one thing you got to understand about our context when we started doing this is the instrumentation lends itself to, you know, not really doing that. Like we didn't, we generally had guitars and a djembe setting up in a classroom temporarily. Okay, so that pushes you towards some tunes that you can do and some that are harder to do. Um, but I also, I I do like you know dr- connecting more to folk music because I think it tends to be a little more transcultural tunes. I, I, honestly, again, this is something Paul Westermeyer pointed out, um, that the hymn tunes that tend to last tend to be more connected to folk music. That seems to They seem to, to last. There are some tunes that are just so like kind of Victorian schmaltzy that they're just kind of time bound. And some people will say that about some of our tunes, and I'm sure that's true. Um, my goal isn't necessarily to Write tunes that will last forever, like Keith Getty. My goal is to get my students to sing some of these texts that have dropped out of the use. And if some of them keep being sung, awesome. If people come up with new tunes to sing some of these, great, whatever. Um, my, my goal is maybe not as lofty. So, you know, four part harmony where the melody's on the top, that's not the only way people have sung. And I'm a great fan of sacred harp singing, and see, like, the way we sing is more similar to that, where the melody's down here and you have some harmony parts above it. Um, You know, Lowell Mason and some others led the thing called the Better Music Movement in the late 1800s to argue that Americans' ways of singing should be, you know, done away with and we should sing according to the right rules of European harmony and no parallel fifths and parallel octaves. And I go to Sacred Heart Singings, they love parallel fifths and octaves, and I think it's awesome and beautiful. So, but I also think four-part, you know, is awesome too. Um, that becomes more of an issue when I go to like the hymn society, and everybody wants to sing in parts. Some of these tunes don't lend themselves to that. Stylistically, it's jarring. Um, but some of them would. Like you could, I'm sure you could put like "Dear Refuge and My Weary Soul" in more, arranged more that way. And I've, I've, some people have tried and sent me versions. So there's some that work, some that wouldn't. I think you just got to be kind of true to the style and try and honor it. So I would never have a rule that you can all, you always have to have four four parts. And I wouldn't have a rule that you can never have four parts. It kind of depends on the, on the musical genre. That's, that's my, I don't know. But I don't know how to do that anyway. I'm a guitar player. I went to Berkeley College of Music. I took a couple semesters of music theory, you know, traditional harmony. But, you know, it would sound like, you know, a music theory student, like, trying to write, you know, four-part harmony, you know. I saw another hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, I don't totally. But I, but I don't think it's, it's creating that. I mean, yeah. our culture in general just has a lack of I mean, Yeah, yeah, right. So four part harmony, as beautiful as it is, mm. 90% of the can't read anything. Right. of Yeah, the and yeah, and I, so it's, and finally, yeah, yeah. It fi- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Cal- like Calvin, the Geneva Psalter. You know, they didn't think it was proper to sing harmony in church, but they published harmony versions to sing in home in the family, right from the beginning. You know, just fascinating. Um, I think that written notation ha- has its good points and bad points. Um, some of the songs that are syncopated, but the rhythms are easy to pick up if you hear them, look really scary when you see them written out. I remember going to a hymn society meeting, and these people are really good sight singers, okay? And um, introducing a couple of our songs at this little meeting, and they were stumbling over trying to read it. And I said, Now I went to Berkeley, so I'm used to reading syncopated. I don't read very well, but I can read syncopated because it's a jazz school. It's just a real different thing. Um, but I knew when we made that RUF hymn book, you know, that was difficult. Like sometimes the Western notation fails to capture what your ear can hear. And you understand why ethnomusicology people are trying to come up with all new ways of trying to notate things. You know, that Western notation system works in some settings, um, but even good classical musicians, they don't stay married to the page, they interpret it, right? And I think sometimes, you know, church musicians or church, you know, I guess we try and sing like so stiff, you know, I, and sometimes you're like, yeah, let it breathe a little bit, but I guess... Either you need to maybe not try to read it, or you need a really great choir director to help it breathe, and sort of in between tends to be kind of awful um, so i don't I don't know it's not my context, but I do you know I recognize new technologies can have new ways of transmitting songs um, so you could send people a link the week before here's a new song we're going to sing, listen to it, you know, and here's a song we're going to sing this week, talk to your kids about the words so that they understand it like. You have the ability to do things you know you don't have to just say the only way to teach a new song is to do it as an offertory one week and then the next week introduce it. There's other ways to teach people and so I think that we do i do think though generally that what's that Is it your method? I think it's great <laughs> you know if that works, but there's others no, I think you know it's interesting, even if people can't read music, they can at least see the direction of the line, and that can help yeah. um so you know th- th- that can be i wouldn 't complete i mean i 'm spending a lot of money to put you know the notated versions of all of our songs online and also full piano music because i 've had so many piano players that want to play it but have been trained in the classical style and they have to have every note written out and um, so I try to help people with that i 'd also encourage them to go get some jazz piano lessons and learn to play from chord charts so that it would just expand what they can do you know um, but, you know, you put music in front of me, it's like the old joke. How do you get a guitar player to turn down? You put music in front of them. Um, and I'm definitely in that camp. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of, I, I have no issues. Well, I have some issues with hymnals and some issues with... Yeah. Right. right. Man, I I love hymnals. I still think there's, there's a place for hymnals. Um, beyond just what happens sunday morning and i think you know i kind of mourn the days when people or miss the days when people had their own hymnals and took them home you know that was kind of that was kind of that's the way people did it years ago um so the projection is is you know has its value too people at least are looking up and singing and you know um but i don't know i it's a lot of money to make a hymnal You know, I'm part of a denomination. I don't know if we're going to invest that money again to make another hymnal. There are also, you know, new songs are harder to incorporate when you only use a hymnal. So, but then sometimes it's nice to have a hymnal, you know, um, just to be able to pull up something. Um, I kind of, you know, for me, now maybe if I was better at knowing how to do PowerPoint, I remember in the old days, RUF conferences, I would not plan the last song until... The guy was preaching, and usually in his closing prayer, I'm running over to my box of overheads and picking a song and putting it on there, and I could do that. I kind of miss that. You know, the PowerPoint technology, I can't do that. Maybe other people could do it if I had better talented people that were doing that instead of me. But, you know, a hymnal, same thing. You know, you can be a little more spontaneous because you've got the whole thing right there. Um, you know, we've got that in Double Grace Hymnbook online now. So I remember, you know, having a hymn sing at my house, and the lighting was real dim, but I can... Be like, hey, go on your phone. Every one of my students can go on his phone, and we can have a hymn sing with our phones. Even if you can't, you know, don't have lighting or you know whatever. So I think all of them have their place. I I love hymnals, but they're also really expensive. And you know, the first Indelible Grace hymn made it into a hymnal. You know, recently the um, CRC and the RCA put together a a hymnal and they put um, God Be Merciful in there, which is a version. You know, again, it seems to make sense because there's not a lot of good hymns about confession and that is based on Psalm. It's the metrical text for Psalm 51. So it didn't surprise me that the Christian reform people put that in there because that's a strong tradition of metrical psalmody, um, and also, you know, they're very committed to all the elements of worship being, you know, connected in their hymnals. So I don't know. One, one last question, then I'll call it a day because I got a good sound check. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, if it's going to be awful, probably. Like I don't, I never feel like, man, we've got to so sing this song that even if it's awful. Yeah, I mean, if it, like, Arise, My Soul, Arise. I didn't know how many women would be here. I had no idea. I didn't pick it as one of those ones we're going to sing in the, in the hymn sing, even though I just told you it's the most sung song of all the Indelible Grace songs that I've written. Um, and part of that was because I didn't think the setup of the band I had would do it very well, because it's going to be more stripped down. And also, I didn't know if there'd be girls to sing the back the part. there have been places where i am like, that would be the great song, but the, it's an all-male group, and it's going to not work as well. Okay, it's just kind of the way it is. I mean, I wrote it for more of a youth group kind of setting. You know, it works great at RUF conferences. It doesn't necessarily work in every setting. But I would tell, like my own songs that we've done on Double Grace Records, I tried to make sure that they all work on one acoustic guitar. And when I made that RUF hymn book thing, in some ways that was my penance for making people think that if they didn't make it sound like the record, that they couldn't do the music. I wanted to say, no, the, the, song, the tune is one melody, and these chords, and then you incarnate it in your setting with your people. Or just take the idea and do your own songs that fit your context culturally, because I don't think any church should sing all the songs we put on records. The stylistic variety is just too wide. Um, But part of that's because we're trying to be a resource for churches of all kinds. So I think try to do what you can. But honestly, if you don't have people that can pull off contemporary worship well, I think traditional worship with less talented church pianists usually works better. Because I see sometimes people try too hard to do stuff that's just, it—it it is beyond them, and then it ends up being really bad. You know, so I, I kind of, I don't know. Even doing this, I've seen a lot of students that loved, didn't like hymns, came to love hymns through retuned, and then now they love traditional tunes. Because it sort of opened them up to, oh, the words are so beautiful. I don't care about the text as much, the song tune as much anymore. So... And I'm seeing a lot of people going back, like the Page, you know, whatever, Latifah Phillips and those guys, doing all these traditional hymns, but arranging them in cool ways, reharmonizing. I used to do a lot more of that in the early days, because I'd try and pick out the chords from the hymnal, and then it was like a different chord on every beat, and that's a little hard to play. Like, stylistically, it doesn't work so good on guitar. So then I'd try to reharmonize and stuff. Some of that worked, some of it didn't. Um, I don't know, some of them you might just have to say, the rhythmic jarringness of that is difficult. And sometimes I've had to slow songs down because there's an older crowd, and I know you have to contextualize. You know, that's maybe not the best song for this context, or that's not a good song at that tempo for this context. I need to slow it down, need to straighten it out. Just try, you know, always trying to serve people. So, you guys got to go. I got to go too because I got to do sound check. But thanks. I hope you all come back and we'll hear some, can sing some songs with us. Yes, yeah, thanks.